Welcome to the Beautiful Project podcast, a space for women to share the extraordinary truths they know about their bodies and their ambitions and all of the parts they believe to be too big in a world that would prefer they shrink. These women are the change makers. If I can do anything, I want to be able to inspire people to just be their best. They are a voice of kindness. What I know is that you can give yourself love right now and that you're deserving of that love right now. They are a creative force unlike any other, helping all of us to see that the path to freedom can be found together. Now, it's not only just a movement, it's really become this collective. These are the voices in our chorus of courage. It doesn't matter how many doors close in your face, you just go back and you open them again. Go make something that you love making. And just, you know, just go ahead and do it. So let's listen in as they sing. Welcome back to the Beautiful Project Podcast for another episode of Season 3, The Mamas and the Makers. This is a season dedicated entirely to celebrating the way that women show up in the world as a creative force. In this season, I will showcase the work of women who know what it means to take up space by making something new. And today's guest definitely knows something about that. So welcome to the microphone, Gay. Thank you for saying yes to this conversation. Oh, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> of course. It is my absolute pleasure. So um, true to form for most of the guests that I host on the podcast now, Gay and I don't really know each other well. We had one conversation. Um, it was slated for an hour. I feel like it went longer than that. But within the first five minutes, I knew that what she was making in the world is something that you needed to know about. So I'm really excited about our conversation and kind of um, how it rolls out. So I want to start, though. Um, I actually don't provide the bio. I just want to ask you to tell the people about yourself and about the work that you're doing. Well, um, of course, my name is Gay Shannon Burnett. Yeah. And I'm an artist, but I'm also a person that's connected to the community. And I have always felt that it was my my obligation to give back to the community that I was connected to. Mm -hmm. So through art and just through different activities and different programs that I provide through the organization that I created, mm -hmm. I'm doing that, giving back to the community and trying to make a difference, not just in the lives of people who are exactly like me, but in the lives of anyone that I come in contact with, mm -hmm. especially children. Mm -hmm. So I have an art gallery. Okay. I also have a not-for-profit called Ozimbuki African American Council for the Arts. I know that's a long name, but okay. <laughs> we wanted it to accurately describe who we were and kind of, you know, let you know what we were doing. Um, it's all-inclusive. Anyone that's interested in African-American art and culture is always invited. And yes, we do focus pretty much on African-American art and culture, yeah. but it's not exclusive to that. I mean, there's other cultures and, and art and, you know, theater and films that have enriched the lives of everyone. So we try to include all of that as well mm -hmm. and just present it to our community because we think that there's a rich heritage of, of culture that we need to experience. Mm -hmm. And I do try to, um, to bring that to as many kids, black or white, Hispanic, that don't have those opportunities mm -hmm. to actually, you know, 
find out other things in the world. I've always been really surprised when I find out that children have never traveled. I mean, sometimes when we were work, I used to work in after school programming. Yeah. When that was like my nine to five day job. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I found out a lot of kids, the furthest they've ever been was Iowa City or they've been to Chicago and no yeah. one has actually traveled anywhere. And some of the kids were junior high and high schools and they really didn't have any aspirations that they could go beyond wherever they saw their their station. So we try to bring that in mm-hmm. so they can see themselves in the world mm-hmm. in different places and understand that, you know, they can belong there too as well. I love that so much. So mm-hmm. one of the things that uh, really made a mark on me in our conversation is how you're looking primarily at a population of people who are often focused on survival, mm-hmm. like just surviving, right? Mm-hmm. And you give them this space to exhale and understand that that there might be something beyond that experience of just surviving, like exhaling and creating and making. And mm. and I feel like that work actually makes the surviving, um, I don't want to say easier because the surviving is always hard, mm-hmm. you know, but maybe it, it uh, grounds them in a different sense of purpose outside mm. of like just surviving all the time. So... Well, what I've seen with um, especially young people I've worked with, and the thing is, is that, yes, they're caught up in surviving. Their parents are caught up in surviving. They understand this whole survival mode that the entire family seems to be going through. Yeah. But once they start actually creating and, and like, if it's film, if it's art, if it's, I mean, whatever it is, theater, because we do a lot with theater, Mm -hmm. and they stop just focusing on survival. Right. I think it helps them to learn how to actually live their lives. Yeah. And to understand that they can have dreams and aspirations and these things are completely, you know, achievable. And that's the hardest thing is to get them to see that they can be something different than whatever's prescribed for them right now. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of break that mold and say, okay, Because a lot of times, especially with our film program, we have a summer film program called Urban Exposure, Mm -hmm. and the kids are like, sometimes we take them at 15, but it's usually 16 through 21, and they don't see themselves, you know, being able to make a film. Of course, you know, everybody watches film, but they don't see themselves able to make a film, and they don't understand that art, film, theater, all these things are industries. And they are avenues that they can have actual jobs Mm -hmm. that they would be able to fund their entire lives. I mean, I know people that are grips, you know, and behind the scenes. And, you know, they buy houses, they have cars, they have children, they send their kids to school, they are able to... um, afford health insurance and things like that, and that's a real tricky one. But yeah, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah. but it it's actually a way that you could make a living, and they don't understand that there's other options to them. Mm-hmm. A lot of times there's um, educational challenges, so a lot of these kids are not going to be doctors and lawyers. Everyone is not going to go into the NBA or the NFL. I mean, those are aspirations because they do see people like them doing that. Of course. But it's like, you know, going through the eye of a needle. It's, you know, not a lot of people. There's more people trying to get in there than 
actually make it. But these are different venues of employment that are accessible to you. And those are the things that we we try to do. Stop surviving and think about ways that you can actually live your life and and fund it, too, you know. Well, and that's so important, Mm -hmm. too, I think, to run those parallel tracks of it doesn't just have to be something you do for fun. It is translatable into a way of living. Mm -hmm. Um, I, yeah, I can't overstate how important and brilliant and beautiful that is. Uh, I'm curious, is there a particular person, a creative person or a creator of some sort that you idolize or aspire to model? And if so, like, what about what they do lights you up? What is it that draws you to them? Well, I don't have just one person. <laughs> you can, And you can just go on and on. I'm okay with that. You go. Yeah, I mean, I have, like, several people sure. uh, that I've really, um, I hold as, you know, being some type of um, inspiration for myself yeah. as far as that's concerned. And it would usually run on the lines of uh, women that have been either in theater or film or just something where we think it's easy for women to have been in those things, but we don't understand the challenges, especially for older women. Like, I've always liked Cicely Tyson. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. I mean, she's made a lot of accomplishments as an actress, but it wasn't always easy. Right. And that's one of the things when you find women directors. I I personally know Julie Dash, Mm. and I know that that wasn't always, you know, a walk in the park for Julie as well. There were challenges. Mm -hmm. Just being a woman and, you know trying to break into Hollywood, and then being an African-American woman presented different types of challenges that were unique to being both. Yep. And women that persevere and that, you know, that kind of, you know, just stay with it and make whatever type of indentation in, you know, in that industry that they can and tell their stories and just have those stories out there for other women to to hear and to see and to actually be inspired by. So those are the type those. of women that um, that inspire me. And I, I, I do love Jane Fonda. Well, it's hard to not love Jane. What do you love about Jane Fonda? Tell well, me that. I, I like a lot of things about Jane Fonda. <laughs> I definitely like that fire drill Fridays that she's doing, <laughs> getting arrested. I'm thinking, how many times can you get arrested with having, without having to stay in jail? Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 But the thing that I really find inspiring about Jane Fonda is that she has shown us as a woman that we can be beautiful and we can still be a woman at any age. Mm-hmm. And I, I, women that do that, that have that beauty and that sense of self that kind of transcend all ages and where, you know, it's not all about being 20. Yep. It's not all about fitting into a certain mode or yep. anything like that. It looks like she takes care of herself. So she's one of my... My idols, I'm thinking her and Cicely Tyson, I, you know, 82 and 95, I said, okay, I can yeah. do this. Yeah, just keep going, <laughs> yeah, right? Just that keep direction. Going. Yeah, in that direction, staying healthy and active and that yeah. type of thing, and being relevant. And that's one of the things that we find, especially for women, men seem to be able to bridge that gap a little bit better, but as a woman, we are not relevant 
after a certain age. And I think as a woman, we do that more to ourselves. Mm. And I, I think a lot of times younger women think that it's all about just being young. No, it's about being productive and giving and, you know, just like you say, creating mm -hmm. space in this world for yourself mm -hmm. and that you can do that at any age and it should be respected as far as that's concerned. Do you think that that like waning relevance thing is on some level attributed to the fact that women often understand, we often understand our worth um, in relationship to whether or not we're appealing as a partner. So mm -hmm. I think that it comes from this place of, am I still attractive? Am I, st does somebody still, does somebody else still want me? That's sort of this core place of this is where we're deriving our worth. And so mm -hmm. I think that's why there's this emphasis on age and a particular mold, you know, of, well, it's generally, you know, straight, thin, and white, mm -hmm. uh, really. Mm -hmm. And so the any deviation from that, and young, you know, to your point, young, mm -hmm. I love this idea that we can invite ourselves to, to a true sense of being relevant by way of all of the ways that we show up in the world, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. just whether or not I'm appealing to another person, right? Mm -hmm. But But am I here? Am I here to take up space? in all of the ways that I can do that. So mm -hmm. I love that you brought two examples um, of people who it, it isn't just about how it is that they are treating themselves, although that's important, but that idea that our relevance exists beyond our ability to be attractive to somebody else mm -hmm. or fit a particular mold. Mm -hmm. I want to invite every woman, girl, 8 years old to 88 years old, to understand that about herself, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I just I do think it has something to do with that that sense of waning relevance. Do you do you think there's a connection there? Oh, there's absolutely a connection there, and I think women buy into that far too much, <laughs> as far as I'm Same. concerned. Yes. Yeah, and I I mean I as an African American woman, I have not always fit into the mode of what is acceptable, what is beauty, and all of that stuff type of things. So I've always had to fortify myself against all of those things. So I, personally, I pay it no mind, you know, I'm right. thinking if you don't find me attractive, then guess what? It's you I don't need. And so, yes. <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean, I, I'm, yes. I'm not immune because I'm a human being, I'm a person. Right. But I think that I, I do have that, that, you know, harder exterior. And I've really just push right through a lot of that stuff. But I think the challenging thing for me, too, is to really keep a good sense of my relevance. You yep. know, uh, don't worry about the beauty and the attractive. I just figure if I, you know, stay sound mind, have good health and, you know, I'm active, then, you know, whatever else happens, happens. But I do want to be relevant and I do want to have some type of purpose. And I'd like to have not so much a legacy, but there's something I feel that I should give back. Yeah. And it's whoever's receptive to what it is I have to give back. And I think that's a really important thing that we we do have to give back. I mean, small children are always open, you know, to yep. those type of things. They are. And then there's um there's teenage girls sometimes that really just need that that you know, that person that that comes into their lives and cares about them and tries to mentor them and inspire them. So I do that. And then there's women my age and that need that too because just because they're older, a lot of times I feel that they, um, they're more 
I don't want to say damaged, but I, I think yeah. they feel more of the effect of, you know, what this world does, the negative effects. And so they also need that, that I call it kind of like a hug. <laughs> they do, yeah. I think we, you said something so important. You said, I'm not immune to it. I'm still a human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, um, I think one of the things that will happen is folks will start to, uh, maybe start to idolize people who seem to have thicker skin, right? Because it happens to me sometimes too, because people assume that I, because I have a body positive message, that my relationship with my body is always easy. Hmm. And it's not always easy because I'm aware of how it doesn't fit the norm, quote unquote, right? And I'm not immune to it, but also have decided to fortify myself with all of who I am. Mm-hmm. Because for me, that brings me peace. Mm-hmm. And I want peace more than I want, um, more than I want that that level of acceptance mm-hmm. that I'm probably going to chase my whole life anyway and never really find. So I love I love that you brought that sort of to roost, that notion of like, I'm still not immune to it, but I have choices and I've, I've chosen to fortify myself against it this way. Mm-hmm. And that is available, again, to any woman. That's available to all of us because we really are more than our bodies. We are more um, than how we appeal to other people. Mm-hmm. I love that very much. So I'm curious, you talked about also the relevance of giving back, how I've heard you say it a few times, that's super important to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm assuming that that's going to kind of play in with this next question, but I wanted to just kind of open up the mic for you to share the origin story. And so by that, I mean, this is kind of the spot for your personal story, <laughs> you know, um, and really in any way you want to tell it. Uh, so you could start kind of with the notion of have you always understood yourself as a creative, as a, as a creative force in the world, and then how did that play out over time? Well. Well. Uh, I know. <laughs> He's got a story to tell. Well, I do, and there's yeah. only so much I'm going to share. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Of course. <laughs> but for the most part, yes, I think younger, the younger I was, like, you know, that 18 through maybe about, you know, 25, 30, I did feel like just this dynamic force in the world that, you know, that was creative. I danced, I act, I, you know, did art, I made clothes, I designed this and that. Whatever I felt like I wanted to do creatively, I did Mm -hmm. and experienced as much as I could. I joined the military, so I got to travel. (laughs) I actually did get to travel, and it, it turned out to be a relatively good experience for myself. However, you know, I was in the Army during peacetime and stationed sure. in Germany the entire time. So that was an adventure, and that's what I wanted, was an adventure. And going to college was an adventure, and that was something else I wanted. So I did it before I went to the Army, and then when I got out, mm-hmm. I was able to return on my GI Bill so mm-hmm. I could finish school that way. So um I did. I always saw myself as being very creative. I think the thing that kind of acted as a restraint was when I started having children. Mm-hmm. And I think that changes life for a lot of women, mm-hmm. you know, because you're responsible for these other human beings. And it takes the focus off of yourself and who you are into raising these kids. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> that kind of shifted. And I, I think that... Um, my creativity in a lot of ways was compromised, and but those were my decisions. I, I thought it was really important to focus on raising my kids and making sure that they were healthy and strong and all of that type of stuff. And I think it wasn't until um, everyone was in high school that I started refocusing attention to myself. 
And then I, you know, I had parents that were getting old and sick and taking care of, you know, all of that type of stuff that really takes from you. During that time, um, I think I, maybe I was like about 50 years old because mm. I'm giving away my age now. <laughs> and I gained a super amount of weight. Mm-hmm. And so, and I'm struggling with all kinds of things. Now I'm struggling with my, um, my own image and mm. having to be a caregiver for aging parents and still my kids aren't finished yet. Everyone's not in college. Like I'm in high school. And so it was really taxing. That sounds to say heavy. The least. That all sounds yeah. heavy. And it was like a certain point when I maybe five years ago, it just seemed like um, a burden lifted off of my shoulders. And you know <laughs> yeah. and when I felt that way that I started back creating and that's pretty much around the same time I uh, started Azambuki. But when my father died, and that was maybe 10 years ago, I opened the studio at Bucktown. Okay. Yeah, and so, but my mother was still alive. I was still taking care of her and, you know, my nephew and, you know, kids and just working. So yeah. it was just a lot. Um, so my creative space got smaller and smaller and smaller. And when he died, I decided that I wanted to do something to nourish me. Hmm. And it was just a space because I was upstairs and you could just have a studio and I could go there. Hmm. And no matter whether it was an hour I could go there or, you know, spend an afternoon there, it was some place for me. And that's when everything started, you know, healing. I named my first studio, was called Studio 56, because I was 56 years old. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> I said, well, that's a good name. <laughs> but during that time, it's just like things start lifting off my shoulders, and everything started lifting off my shoulders. And just little by little, I start feeling normal again. I start feeling a lot more creative. I was making art. I was still writing poetry. But it was still just for me. Mm-hmm. And I think um, when my mother passed, it was sad and it was heartbreaking on a certain level because I had had her you know, all of my life. But it also lifted something off of me. I mean, she had been sick for a long time, and I had been her caregiver for like the last five years. And so even though you're sad, it was still like a relief. And it Was took that me hard a- for you to get there? Because I'm curious, yeah. what, especially women and daughters, like, was it hard for you to acknowledge that it felt like that both things could coexist, like your grief and your joy? Yeah. I mean, you feel guilty for a while. Of course, like yeah, you, that's what you're I you're a bad daughter or yeah. something like that. Because you're not glad she's gone. <laughs> no, I'm not glad she's gone. Right, but the, but the release that it gave you mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. be all of you again, mm-hmm. that has to be a conflicting emotion. It was a very conflicting emotion, and during that time, I, I know it has nothing to do with her so much as more me. That's when I started losing weight again, mm-hmm. when I started just, you know— just feeling like I could exhale and breathe and just start back being me. I almost didn't know what to do because I'd spent so much time taking care of other people. All the kids mm-hmm. were in college and, you know, because, yeah. yeah, both of my kids have uh, advanced degrees, so they stayed in school a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I didn't have anybody else to take care of mm-hmm. but myself. And that really was an adjustment. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what do you do with this time mm-hmm. that you have back? And it was good that I had the studio, and that's when Azimbuki, because I still always needed something to do. Mm-hmm. And my son says I, I pack in too much, but I still needed to be productive, but it, it became different, and I could touch in, you know, and involve myself in as much art or, you know, giving back or, you know, helping other people as I wanted to because I had my time back. Mm -hmm. And I just figured I should do as much as I can while I still had good health and energy. Yeah. So I I think I might have gotten just a little off track. (laughs) No, no, it's just your story, actually, so it's perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, So... So that was kind of where the creative force reawakened in you, where you mm-hmm. went, oh, there's... And, that, and I think it's so important to point out, too, that um, that one of the things you acknowledge is that there was space for it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, where were you going to put it in between all of that other caretaking for all of those years, you mm-hmm. know? And I think that's a thing that women struggle with in general. We're told all the time, and I think it's true, we can't pour from an empty cup. All of those things are true. And then there are seasons of our life where it doesn't appear that there's another option, mm-hmm. right? So I love that you had an instinct um, the second that you could make just a little space, it turned into a little space for you, this this Studio 56, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell me when... Um, so when did you found the nonprofit, and when did you start the class? The, the class are the classes part of the nonprofit. The classes started when I was just up in the studio. That's what I thought. Yeah, because okay. <laughs> there were, um, well, Vivian and her brother with her mom came in, and they wanted to know, well, how much do you teach art classes first, and then how much does it cost? And I'm thinking, well, I guess I could teach art classes. I got a studio up here. <laughs> I'm not really sure. Yeah, and then her mother just started talking about, you know, I want to involve them in art. You know, I'm working this temp job. I'm trying to get myself back on the feet. And she was a single parent and everything. And she didn't do it like a sad sob story. It was just kind of, you know, thinking out loud more or less. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, why don't you guys come back next week at 11 o'clock? And we can, you know, I can figure it out then. So when they came back, uh, she said, well, I want to make sure I have enough that I can pay you. And I said, well, don't worry about that. I said, the kids have to pay. And they said, what? We don't have any money. (laughs) (laughs) And so I devised a credit system where... If they did their homework, they cleaned their rooms, their mother told me that they had done all these things and they got credit for their class. And Vivian um, started with me, she was six years old, she's 12 now, so she was my absolute first student for the art classes. I had done all kinds of after-school programming and summer programming and volunteering at the King Center and Mm -hmm. United Neighbors and different things, so I always kept a full plate, but actually for myself to teach art that type of way. I started with Vivian and her brother, mm-hmm. and that's how the art classes grew. And I guess that's kind of how Azimbuki grew because I figured, well, we could do more if we were a not-for-profit, and mm-hmm. we could service more kids, we could apply for grants, and that type of thing. So one thing kind of led to another, but I, I think it all started with Miss Vivian Miss needing Vivian. <laughs> art classes, I guess. I, uh, the... The way that these things start, these things mm-hmm. that become much bigger, they often just start in this one moment, mm-hmm. you know, to freeze it and to remember it and to give it a voice and a stage and say, that was part of what was providential in my life. Vivian walking in mm-hmm. and saying, hey, I want to I want to learn. Right. And then 
this credit system is brilliant, mm-hmm. FYI. I mean, mm-hmm. that's so brilliant mm-hmm. because it's, again, it's not just... Um, it's not just doing the thing that's obvious, which that would be enough, honestly, the teaching of the art. But now it's the it's the idea that all these things are connected, mm-hmm. you know, that the way that I live in my home is connected to who I am outside of my home. And that was just brilliant. Um, so do you keep that credit system in place for everybody or is it? Well, how does, how it does was it... for everybody. But I mean, as we really got to be a not-for-profit, um, the classes are free because we get funding right. and things like that. Um, I'm never really concerned about whether I get paid. So if you don't have to pay a teacher, that that's a, that's a big part of it. We have supplies and snacks and a space and everything's good because there's more to, um, to doing that than just... Um, you know, making money off of it. So I was at the point where it's not, I'm not independently wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm okay if I'm not getting paid, you know, from art classes. That's Mm -hmm. all I have to say. Um, So that worked out for me really well. Uh, The kids at first did have to come through with the credit system. I mean, if they've been really bad and the parents tell me that, I'd say, well, maybe they should sit this one out. And so I'd let the parents decide at this point how to motivate the kids, you know, as far as that's concerned. So we are not strictly doing the credit system anymore, but it is still free to all the participants. Yeah, that's the part I really wanted to point out was that um, that you're taking, and one of the things you shared with me too is that you're taking a population of people mm-hmm. who often do not have access for mm-hmm. for a thousand reasons. Mm-hmm. Many of them socioeconomic, mm-hmm. um, many of them race based. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you're giving people access to something that shifts again that lens of mm-hmm. from survival to my life could be bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and access is it is the foundation of these conversations that we have. I think. Mm-hmm. So often we want to know, um, we don't really want to take a look at why around things, right? And and over and over, as I look at it, access is often a big thing about why, about a, a lot of whys, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Um, about food and class and all, just all sorts of things. So what a cool thing that uh, that this space exists. Well, our most of the thing, and I can't say most, but I think also Urban Exposure, the film program. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. I love the film program. Okay, (laughs) because we really started that to give a voice to kids that we thought were voiceless and to bring not just that whole idea that you can make a living, it's an industry, but more so to give them a voice so they could express themselves in a way that they felt was meaningful, that they could show people who they were, especially people that were in their community, and to also try to create empathy mm-hmm. for the kids and what they were going through. Now, mind you, we, we don't say, oh, you can only join Urban Exposure if you have these real heart-wrenching stories. I mean, some sometimes the kids do not talk about their real stories. They're more, we call them like after-school program. <laughs> I mean, after-school specials. Yeah, oh, yeah we yeah. had a couple of those come through. But for the most part, they talk about something that's meaningful and significant to them. There was one young lady, uh, Dania Green, and she actually won... Um, 
audience choice in a film festival that I had <laughs> that I had enrolled them to. It was called Emerging Lens, and you had to be of African Amer- African descent, and mm-hmm. it was out of Nova Scotia. And so I said, oh, you know, what the heck? Let's just send these two in. And both of the young ladies won, but Dania's whole film, and it's a short film, was about colorism. Mm-hmm. And not just so much how black women are treated, you know, from the majority culture, but how they are treated within, I mean, treated within the African-American culture, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to African-American men. And so she, this was, she was 15 years old when she wrote it. Mm-hmm. And it was something that was important to her. Mm-hmm. And she had two girls. One girl was dark and had, you know, traditional African-American hair, and the other girl was light and, you know, had hair that was more, you know, straight and things yeah. like that. They were best friends, but the darker girl would always, you know, get comments from people, look at her, you know, black women, dark girls are evil or, or mean, that's what they said. And these are just all the things that this 15-year-old girl is going through. Yep. And so she's talking about that. So we did get a couple of things that were very, you know, significant and things that kids were struggling through. And hopefully seeing that, you know, for the audience that looked at it, provided some type of or gave them some type of grounds to be empathetic mm-hmm. with this young woman. Mm-hmm. And I like someone said, well, wow, we're surprised that... It won an award in Nova Scotia. I said, well, one, it was a black film festival, (laughs) whether it was Canadian or not. (laughs) And I said, number two, this is a struggle for black women around the world. Right. So it's not just an American thing. And there's some things that are struggles for women, period. But for black women, that colorism thing, that's a problem. And so I could see people relating to that. Yeah, so the film program has been designed so children or young people can actually express themselves and do it in a way where, you know, where it has longevity, too, because, you know, a film can live forever. Sure can. (laughs) What an incredible thing to give a stage to that kind of a voice and in a way that it lives forever. It's not a a Facebook post. Which also can live forever, yeah, be can. it good or bad, um, but in this real, true, visual way that is um, that engages all the senses in many ways. You know, that's enormous. So, so the people who, who participate in the film program, mm. I think you shared with me, if I recall correctly, that the whole thing is produced by. I mean, they they get a little taste of all of the parts of filmmaking. Is that right? Well, it's actually a 10-week program. Right. And it goes three times a week, and it's three to four hours a So it's a, <laughs> a huge session. commitment. Yeah. It's a big commitment. And so um, since it's a small group that actually commits to that, for just being the filmmaking program, they learned everything about film. My son who teaches it, he has his MFA in filmmaking, he said it's like the first semester of film school condensed into 10 weeks, you know, our first year or something like that. And all of our instructors have some type of uh, degree in filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And so we have four main instructors that we use. And we are thinking about Skyping other people in. But the kids learn 
about filmmaking and then they actually learn how to, you know, shoot their own film and to make their own film. So they learn with our equipment. Then we have production week, and that's when we pull in other people. We do have different components to the filmmaking uh, program. We have acting for film, and we were very, very fortunate to get John Cameron. Yeah, that's the right name because it's not James. <laughs> that's uh, a professor at the University of Iowa. And so this year he collaborated with us and taught the acting for film program. And he says, well, I'll be here for two more years. You can use me. And we say thank you. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, so that's open to the public, and it is free right now because for the most part we work on grants, and we try to keep it accessible to kids that would not normally have money yep. to pay for them. And then sometimes we do get kids that have more of a middle-class background, but we're not going to discriminate <laughs> because right. their parents can you know, probably afford to pay. But a lot of times... Those parents and a lot of the other people, they'll donate when we're doing a Facebook campaign and stuff like that because they feel that it's valuable to, you know, to give to the program. And then after that, we have a um, production crew workshop. And so with the kids that come through the audition or the people that come through the audition and the production crew, we put all that together and we have production weekend. It's Whatever it takes to make these three to four films just depends on how many kids actually wrote their films. We do have sure. kids that take the program, but they didn't feel comfortable writing a screenplay, you know, this time. We had one young man, Cooper Harrison, and his first year, that's what he did, but he came back for a second year, and we just saw him blossom, and he's in... He's at Iowa City in film school now, so, oh. yeah. <laughs> and Cooper is really very serious, very good cinematographer, too, so okay, he shoots a lot of cool films. cool is that? Like, it's real good. that's amazing. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's wonderful. Wow. So they, they make their films. We premiere them at the Figgy, and um, I don't know how many we've made because it's been uh, five years of filmmaking, and we do have a Vimeo and a YouTube channel, so you can always look in and, and see, you know, the different films that have been made. We'll make sure um, in the show notes for the podcast, too, to link, um, to make sure that we have all the links to those things so that people can get there and watch the films and get to the work that you're doing. Okay. Because I would love to amplify that. Um, yeah. What a powerful tool. What a powerful um, force that all of that is in ways that uh, one of the things that you know, it's sort of cliche, the idea about dropping a rock in a pond and the ripples. You know, we use it all the time. Mm. But it's a cliche because it's true, right? So there's this one action that ripples out. And mm. just just that last, what was his name, the guy you just shared with me? Oh, Cooper Harris. Cooper, right? <laughs> yeah. So the way that that impacted, and he showed up the first year and wasn't really ready. Well, no, he didn't come the first year. It oh, okay. was just his first year. Yeah, and so I think he was... Uh, he came the third year. Got it. Yeah, that we had the program, but it was his first year. But yeah. in his first year, you yeah. said he wasn't he wasn't ready to like. He came back the second year. Was that? Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't ready to actually produce his own right. film, yeah. which we were surprised because he he really is very good, and yeah. you know. <laughs> but he said no, not this year. He just worked with someone else on their film but he took out the entire class he came back for a second That's year beautiful. and he really did have a beautiful film yeah so. oh yeah I want to I want to watch all of that mm -hmm. so uh, I don't want to keep you too long I have a couple more questions okay. I, I want to know um, so all of you've been making things 
forever, mm-hmm. it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, yeah. really, you've been making things forever. So poetry and paintings, and I've mm-hmm. seen some of Gay's work, and I love it so mm-hmm. much. Um, you made children, mm-hmm. right, who, made, yeah. who, made a, uh, who, who are making an impact in the world. You've uh, helped to create and found these programs. Tell me, so you've put all this out in the world. Tell me how all of this creativity, the product of all of this, mm-hmm. has changed you. Because I think the way, I think creativity is circular and it's impact, mm-hmm. right? So I know how I'm changed by the work of the project. Mm-hmm. It's an, I feel like an entirely new creation on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious for you about when you look at this lifetime, sort of this legacy of creating, mm-hmm. do you see how it has changed you or has it changed you? Um, I'm not so sure that it's changed me. Okay. But I'm positive that it has nourished me yeah. and it's fueled my life. And so I, I don't know. There's probably things that have changed. You know, oh, I could do this a little better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe I shouldn't be doing this or maybe I should continue to do this. But I still feel pretty much like who I was mm-hmm. and who I felt I should be. And I think that... Um, as I get older, there's a certain clarity to that because, you know, there's a reality. I'm probably not going to live another 65 years. So. <laughs> <laughs> and if I do, what shape will I be in? Mm-hmm. So I, I have to kind of focus and really fine-tune what it is I feel I, I need to do next. Mm-hmm. And I don't expand and do... <clears throat> I do a lot of things, but I, I'm just not all over the place like I could sure. be when I was 20. and. I never knew that I couldn't be creative, uh, you know, so that mm. was the strange thing. I, I never needed permission for that because I figured, oh, I'm here. I can do this, you know. <laughs> I can do that. Um, I didn't feel that I had to have anything particular to be a creative being. I just thought that it was, you know, it was my right. It was my my talent. It was something that God gave me. Mm. And so I would be, um, I sh- would Definitely not be a very grateful person if I didn't use it. <laughs> sure, <laughs> so, right, yeah. yeah. That's a, a beautiful and rare quality, I think, mm-hmm. for a woman in particular to say, I didn't feel like I needed permission. I just did it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> May we all walk in your wake on that one. <laughs> um, uh, you said you needed to, actually you led me right to it, so you talked about honing in on what's next. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um what would that be? What do you think that looks like? If you can make anything, what is what's next for you? I actually, I don't want to be the filmmaker, filmmaker, but I'd like to write a screenplay that is personal and also something that I'd like to share and give back, mm-hmm. you know, and leave as part of, you know, this creative legacy. So... I think it's hard for me to be around film and everyone I know do film without creating a film. So mm. I think that's what's next for me. Excellent. And I'd like to, instead of just sitting there while everybody takes the film program, <laughs> maybe I should pay right. attention. <laughs> right. Yeah, and use it yourself, I yeah. think, as a medium. That's, yeah. Well, we actually plan as part of Ozambuki and Urban Exposure to do some type of film programming for older women Mm -hmm. because I think at a certain point when you get to a certain age, you've collected a lot of wisdom, you have all these experiences, and I still think that you have a voice and what you have to say is valuable. So we, you know, like 
we have a lot of young women in our urban exposure program, and it's really pretty heavy female. Uh, we're, we were glad about that, but, you know, it was like, oh, a lot of the girls are showing up. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, so that was great. But as far as older women, it's not a lot that's available to them. Sure. And we want to, we want to be, you know, that catalyst that they yeah. can start there. Giving them access again. Mm -hmm. And they can actually still have a career. You do not have to be, you know, 25, 30 to start a film career. There's lots of people that have started careers later in life. And it's, it's pretty common for women because we had to get all that mothering and we caregiving did. and all that other stuff out the way first. And we're looking to what's next for us. It's almost like two lifetimes for us, I feel like. <laughs> Three. Right? Yeah. Just the little one. And the, right? Yeah. You're right. I said two because I'm still in the second part. Yes, you are. <laughs> Gosh, that's so good. Three. Yeah, it is three. Um, one final question for you. Uh, we have um, some women in the audience. That's who our primary demographic is, women. And uh, generally, what I find to be true about women is that they generally have something in them mm -hmm. that says, I want to make this or go do this or be this. What uh, what do you want to leave them with? What do you want them to know maybe about themselves, about the work that's in front of them? Just um, whatever you want them to know, I want to give you a chance to share that with them. What I, I mean, what I want them to know is really pretty simple. First of all, you just don't need permission. And to go ahead and the only person you need permission from is yourself. You know, you tell yourself yes. And you tell yourself yes every day. And I know you were talking about Facebook, but I, I did read something, you know, how people post up and oh, yeah. everything. And yeah. it was really, you know, quite interesting. And he said, when a door closes, open it again. He said, that's the way it, doors work, you know. Because <laughs> people will say, oh, when a door closes, find, find a window. A window. No, no, just no. open he the door said, again. open the door again, because that's how doors work. Oh, just open it again. So... It doesn't matter how many doors close in your face. You just go back and you open them again. It doesn't matter who tells you you can't have access. You, you give yourself permission. You go and you see, can I get in here? Maybe not today, tomorrow, <laughs> the next day. So you do have to um, have some type of perseverance, and you do have to have wisdom to know when you need to alter your course. It mm -hmm. doesn't mean you don't get to your final destination. You just have to, maybe you might have to go a different way. But I think it's more important for women to give themselves permission and to, um, to realize that, you know, their dreams are important too mm -hmm. and what they have to say and what they'd like to share with the world. It's important. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, just go ahead and do it. Okay, we cannot top that. Thank you <laughs> from the bottom of my heart for your wisdom, for your willingness to share that whole experience with this audience. I think they're going to be changed by it uh, dramatically. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world, for making for making everything that you've made uh, to make it different. So thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you for having me. Yep, you bet. <laughs> All right, friends, that's it for today. This episode is brought to you from the sound studios at Silver Oaks Communications, a creative media company in Moline, Illinois. It's edited and produced by Archie Kukarans and created by me, Sarah Stevens, the founder of The Beautiful Project. If you loved this episode, make sure you subscribe to the pod on Apple Podcasts or Podbean. While you're there, be sure to leave us a review so that other people will know how to find us. Thank you for being with us today. 
and lending your voice to our chorus of courage as we create a world where women belong with substance and with strength.